0: On tonight's KRBD Evening Report, a man is arrested for allegedly firing a gun during an argument near a Ketchikan school. Plus, a settlement leaves an open question. Who gets to be called a journalist and who doesn't? All that and more coming up. First, let's take a look at the weather. Chance of snow and rain tonight with lows around 30 and light winds. Chance of snow tomorrow with highs in the mid-30s and northwest winds to 10 miles an hour. Friday night, snow with accumulation around 4 inches, lows around 30 in light winds. Saturday, snow is likely with highs in the mid-30s and light winds. On Saturday night, chance of snow with lows in the mid-20s and north winds to 10 miles an hour. It's the KRBD Evening Report. I'm Eric Stone. Authorities say a man is in custody after firing a gun during an argument Wednesday afternoon near a Ketchikan school can police say a man told them he was in a parking lot between Schoenbar Middle School and the skate park when 28-year-old Michael G. Hosley walked up and started yelling. The complaint says Hosley then drew a pistol from his waistband and fired a single shot into the ground. He then fled the scene. No one was injured in the incident. Class was not in session and police downplayed any threat to the school. Ketchikan police say officers arrested Hosley at his downtown apartment later that night. Police report confiscating a 9mm pistol and seized a small amount of methamphetamine from the apartment. Hosley now faces two felony assault charges and recklessly firing a gun. He's also charged with drug possession. As of Thursday afternoon, Hosley is lodged at Ketchikan Correctional Center on $10,000 bail. He's due to appear in court again next month. Ketchikan public defenders didn't return calls for comment Thursday. There's a new species on Alaska's Most Wanted list. Invasive zebra mussels have made their way up north from the lower 48, hitching rides on aquarium moss balls to pet stores. As KDLL's Sabine Pooks reports for Alaska's Energy Desk, biologists in Alaska and more than 30 other states are concerned.
1: For a creature the size of a fingernail, zebra mussels pack a lot of punch. Maura Schumacher is the invasive species specialist for the Kenai Watershed Forum. She says zebra mussels, named for their striped shells, can thrive in both rivers and lakes. They are filter feeders, so basically they pull in water through their systems and they pull out nutrients, and the waste that they are producing is highly acidic and drops the oxygen levels in water systems. That creates an inhospitable environment for other plants and animals living there. Zebra mussels are native to Eastern Europe and likely came over to the u s on ships in the nineteen eighties. They infested all five great lakes and traveled to connected freshwater systems through canals. It's still a mystery how they glommed onto moss balls, small clumps of green algae that help filter water in household aquariums, but that's allowed them to spread across the country because these you know moss balls are being sold by these major pet suppliers. they're getting shipped to you know, places like Alaska, which normally, it's not impossible, but it's very difficult for a zebra mussel to travel from the Great Lakes region to Alaska. The mussels could infiltrate local ecosystems if people dump their aquariums into lakes and rivers. They can wreak havoc on personal property too. Some of the other impacts that they have is that they reproduce so quickly, they can clog storm drains, they cause incredible damage to Um, boats, and other recreational equipment. They just clog up any space available. State and federal agencies are coordinating to warn people who may have purchased moss balls. Major pet stores like Petco have also put out advisories asking customers to toss their moss balls. If you have recently purchased these moss balls, destroy them immediately. Schumacher says acting on the defense is important. Alaska has previously been able to intercept boats carrying zebra mussels. And when you're on the offensive, like they are in, in the Midwest, in the Great Lakes region, it's it's costing those states and economies millions and millions of dollars on a yearly basis. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is asking people to destroy their moss balls. They've released official guidelines for doing so. Moss balls can either be freezed boiled or bleached and then tossed in the trash in a sealed plastic bag. Aquariums that contained moss balls should be drained and cleaned. The agency is also asking people to report zebra mussels they find. We'll have links to those guidelines in the online version of this story at kdll.org. For Alaska's Energy Desk, I'm Sabine Fuchs.
0: Last week, Governor Mike Dunleavy and independent media owner Jeff Landfield settled a lawsuit over media access. The governor's office agreed to pay $65,000 to cover legal fees that Landfield's company, the Alaska Landmine, incurred during the lawsuit. And both parties agree that Landfield can have the same access to the governor's press conferences that other members of the media get. But the lawsuit didn't settle one big question. Who gets to be called a journalist in Alaska, and who doesn't? KTOO's Rasha McChesney has the story.
2: During the lawsuit, Governor Dunleavy's administration argued that Jeff Landfield isn't a journalist, at least not a traditional one. And ultimately, that argument didn't go anywhere, but the question has lingered. This isn't a profession like law. You don't get licensed to practice journalism. And it's been difficult to get any journalists in this state to weigh in on record on the lawsuit and on his particular brand of journalism. I know because I've tried, Landfield says he had the same issue while he was fighting through this lawsuit.
0: I got quietly and privately support uh, from people in the media and reporters, but um, I got, I don't know, I think nothing publicly. Um, The press club didn't say anything.
2: Tom Hewitt, who is on the state's press club board, says he's happy about the outcome of the lawsuit, but Landfield didn't ask them for support. And in any case, he says that's not really their role. And in the end, Landfield didn't need that support. He won his lawsuit. But in the same way that the opinions in Dunleavy's administration impacted Landfield's ability to do his job, other journalists do too. One good example of this is that this year, lawmakers decided that for COVID-19 safety reasons, only one reporter at a time would be allowed to cover the floor sessions. So news outlets got together and worked out a rotating pool of reporters so that everyone would get the chance to cover them. Everyone but Landfield the other journalists and their editors didn't want to work with him, and he says, again, no one would tell him why. I didn't have much luck getting an answer on that one either. But Landfield has a theory.
0: A lot of people have, have um, not been super open or receptive to me or my style or my methods, which maybe they don't like or agree with or appreciate.
2: And... He isn't traditional, at least not in the way that a lot of modern journalists tend to think of themselves. Landfield ran for a Senate office last year. He writes news and opinion interchangeably, and he uses a lot of anonymous sources. But he's got thousands of readers, and he sees himself as a disruptor in a legacy media industry that's struggling. He thinks traditional media outlets see him as a threat. And he breaks a lot of news. As part of his legal team's argument during the lawsuit, they compiled a list of times when legacy media outlets in the state and around the country referenced stories that he broke. You know, information that he published. And that list is pretty long.
0: What I would say to the people in the media who, who don't appreciate me or like my style or who don't like what I do, I mean, they should really stop, you know, using my
2: work. One journalist I spoke to speculated that perhaps ethics could be a good measurement or the dividing line between who is practicing journalism and who isn't. The Society of Professional Journalists, for example, has an ethical code which says "You seek truth and report it." Suzanne Downing, who writes and edits the conservative leaning blog must read Alaska, laughed when I bounced that idea off of her. She says the idea that journalists of traditional media outlets could decide who practices journalism but governments shouldn't that
1: that is probably cognitive dissonance quite honestly to have them decide you know who's ethical enough to perform journalism.
2: Downing has a degree in journalism and worked in legacy newsrooms for a long time. She also edited opinion pages. Then she worked in politics. Now she writes her news from a particular point of view that happens to be conservative. She says that to her, it feels more honest. She regularly criticizes members of the media in Alaska, and she thinks there are going to be more of these types of news from a point of view outlets in the future especially as people in the U.S. are less and less trusting of traditional media.
1: Um, It's a lot of Wild West out there right now, and I think we're going to see it continue to evolve. We're going to see a lot more of these um, platforms develop. They aren't that difficult to do. They're difficult to monetize, but aren't that difficult to roll out.
2: Ultimately, Landfield says he's just happy that he fought for his First Amendment rights and won. And true to form, he's trying to arrange a private meeting with the governor to resolve their differences. How about
0: a beer summit? You know, let's let's get a few beers, get Jeff Turner in there, maybe Ben Stevens can come back for a weekend and have have
2: a little chat, you know, just broad a little bit. He says he hasn't gotten a response to that invitation yet. In Juneau, I'm Rasha McChesney.
0: Petersburg Medical Center has come out with more information about a medical records breach. They say about 200 patients were affected. The community hospital announced that one of its employees had viewed records for patients not under their care. KFSK's Angela Denning reports from Petersburg.
3: Petersburg Medical Center's CEO Phil Hofstetter talked about the incident on a KFSK radio show Thursday.
0: On behalf of PMC, I apologize.
3: The medical center sent out letters to all patients whose medical records may have been viewed by this employee. So how did they find out about it in the first place? Hofstetter says another employee reported it, which is encouraged through the HIPAA training everyone gets at PMC. HIPAA is a federal law which stands for Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act.
2: Both HIPAA
0: and PMC have a rule that if an employee suspects another employee has violated HIPAA, including improperly accessing a confidential medical record, that employee has a duty to report the potential violation to PMC's compliance office.
3: An internal investigation was launched, and the employee in question was kept away from records during that time. PMC also filed the incident with the Office of Civil Rights, which they are required to do. The letters sent out to patients detailed the dates the medical records were viewed. Some of those dates went back two and three years, So, how could someone view records that long ago, but PMC not know about it until the end of February? Hofstetter says they didn't know about some of them until they started digging through the computer system. They looked back through the years that the employee could have had access to records. Everything viewed is stamped in time. Hofstetter says the information was viewed, but there is no evidence that it was stored, copied, or shared.
0: All of the facts point to the information being viewed briefly.
3: Under HIPAA, this type of violation is called. Curiosity lookups. PMC trains all employees that it's not permitted. Hofstetter says they have no reason to believe the breach went beyond their hospital. He says identity theft is very unlikely and billings and financial records are kept separate from the medical records.
0: The investigation found nothing to indicate that patient billing or financial records were viewed.
3: Once it was proved that the employee had inappropriately viewed medical records, the person was terminated and is no longer working at PMC. Hofstetter says HIPAA only requires a press release if there are 500 or more people affected by a breach, but they announced it anyway for transparency reasons. He says they cannot release the name of the employee who was part of the breach because of confidentiality laws PMC is under. Moving forward, this type of thing should be less likely. The medical center has purchased a new electronic health record system, which Hofstetter says will have more safeguards in place including a compliance module that could help indicate improper viewing of records. They expect to begin the process of transferring to that new system by the end of March and have it up and running by the end of November. In Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning.
0: That's it for tonight's edition of the KRBD Evening Report. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Stone.